asked her, and she graciously copied some history and left it on the back table. I think they're all gone. I don't see any back there. Um, so let's talk about some of the highlights. So historians sort of pick 1517 as the beginning of the Reformation. That is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg and to ignite debate, and it ignited a lot more than debate. There were precursors to the Reformation. We'll leave that aside. Just talk about 1517. That's when Martin Luther nailed those theses to the door. The debate and the controversies and the wars were ignited. But by the 1540s, there were two types of Reformation prevalent in Europe. There was Luther, and there was Calvin. There were others, but this, these are the, the two main scholars. Luther, uh, he, <clears throat> he retained the medieval practices, the medieval worship, uh, to a certain extent medieval government. If it wasn't forbidden by the word of God, Luther was good for it. Calvin, on the other hand, was a more thoroughgoing reform. Calvin said, if it is not precisely set forth in the Word of God, it is forbidden. That is where we are now as descendants of Calvin and and Presbyterians in Scotland. That's where we are. So uh, there was Calvin with this more moderate reform, Luther with more moderate reform, Calvin with a more thoroughgoing reform. Lutheranism took off in northern Germany and Scandinavia. Calvinism was more uh, France, the Netherlands, some of southern Germany, and, uh, and then it was carried over to Scotland. How did that come about? In England, the controversies of the Reformation were being waged, and England was swinging back and forth. All right, and in England, the crown, the, the, the king or the queen, the throne, had much influence on the direction the Reformation was going to go because we've all heard of Henry VIII. All right, Henry VIII, he wanted a divorce, couldn't get it, so he rebelled against the pope, separated, and he became, through an act of supremacy, the head, not only the head of state, the head of the church. Okay. And then Henry had a son, and Henry was really, he was still a Catholic. He just didn't want the Pope's authority. But theologically, ideologically, he was still a Catholic. Then we get to Edward. All right. He was more of a Protestant, um, but he, he favored this moderate reform the Lutheran type of reform because it was more friendly to um, the government uh, and the, the, some of the divine right of kings to a certain extent. And then we got to Mary, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary persecuted thoroughgoing reform, any reform, with a vengeance. 280 people were burned at the stake and many were exiled. We'll come back to those exiles. After Mary was no longer queen, Elizabeth came in. 
Now, Elizabeth was a rather pragmatic lady, and uh, she was an Anglo-Catholic at heart, but circumstances forced her to favor Protestantism. Then we get to James I. He's actually Scottish. He was James VI of Scotland, but he was James I of England. And he favored a moderate reform as more in line with the divine right of kings. His son, Charles, we'll get to why this is all important in a minute. Charles was a Catholic, an Anglo-Catholic, all right? The, the Anglicans that didn't want anything to do with the Pope, but they were Catholic in ideology and theology. And under Charles, the Calvinists were bitterly persecuted, just like they were under Mary. So, under Mary, the exiles went to Geneva. And in Geneva, they studied under John Calvin. John Knox was among those. The first layman's, I'll say, Bible came out of Geneva, the first English one, was the Geneva Bible in 1560. And then I, I've, got a 50, I've got a couple copies of a 1599 version. It was, the, it was a study Bible that had margin notes. And the king did not look highly upon those notes because it talked about, uh, for instance, the, the midwives in Egypt. When Moses was born, they did not obey the king's decree to kill the babies. All right, so... Uh, James did not look favorably on that type of ideology, that type of theology, those types of notes in the Bible. So, in Geneva, these are the men who, and women were there, but the men were the leaders of the churches. These, are, these exiles were the ones that carried this thoroughgoing reform back to Scotland and back to England. And these are the ones who became the great men of the church in the early 1600s, these are, in many circumstances, the Puritans. Elizabeth had done her best to stamp out the Puritans, but she wasn't that successful. And so this ideology was coming back from Geneva. James I, all right, James I, he exercised absolute authority and dispensed with Parliament. Charles I, his son, ruled without Parliament. They enforced a rigidity in worship, and they they wanted an Episcopalian, <coughs> excuse me, church government, and they wanted enforced uniformity in the churches. But up in Scotland, things were different. And these exiles from Geneva, John Knox amongst them, go back to Scotland and lead the Reformation in Scotland. Now James the first, he tried to enforce. Anglicanism in Scotland. In 1637, uh, they assigned a new Anglican liturgy to the Scots churches. In 1638, the Scots rebelled with a document called the National Covenant. I've got a copy of it in my confession here. And then Charles, and while they're enforcing rigidity in the churches, Charles dispensed with Parliament and ruled for 11 years without Parliament. Kind of like the president ruling without Congress, you know, okay? Different system, but that's kind of an analogy. All right. So, now, he's, Charles has to wage war against Scotland. He needs money. He calls Parliament. They start, they set themselves out to avenge some grievances, and he dispenses with them again, disbands them. But he can't wage his war. 
So he calls Parliament back into session, and this becomes what's known as the Long Parliament. The Long Parliament immediately passed a bill saying the king cannot disband us, and they started out um, with a bill against Roman Catholic intrusions into religion, and they called forth an assembly of divines, an assembly of clergymen, to go about bringing uniformity of religion in England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. They began working on what's called the 39 Articles. That is the still the Confession of Faith of the Anglican Church. Four months later, that started in June of 1843. By October of 1843, they said, nah, we're going to start all over. And by that time, the Scottish Presbyterians had gotten involved. And so, these divines... There were not, uh, most of them were Presbyterians in ideology. They were all Anglicans. Um, There were only five independents. Independence means they didn't believe in Episcopal government. They didn't believe in Presbyterian government. They wanted independent churches with no oversight or control or review anywhere else. The Erastians, that's a group that really believes that, that the the church is subject to the state that they, there were a few, they didn't have much to do. So they started working. But I want to read to you the vow that they took as they began their work. They did this each week or at least once a month. They took this vow. I do seriously promise and vow in the presence of Almighty God that in this assembly whereof I am a member, I will maintain nothing in the point of doctrine but what I believe to be most agreeable to the Word of God, nor in point of discipline but what may make most for God's glory and the peace and goodwill of His church. So they are doing everything subject to the Bible, to the glory of God, and for the peace of the church. Okay? So, when they started writing their documents, the first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the primary purpose of man? What is our ultimate purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, when you take that principle across the confession of faith and the larger catechism and the shorter catechism, everything is done to the glory of God, subject to the Word of God. That's why I've pointed out every time I talk about this, I just open up a random page. This page is one-third text of the confession and two-thirds the Bible passages that support every clause. Every clause of, almost every clause of the confession of faith is lifted right out of Scripture. So the confession of faith is always subject to Scripture, but it is a good summary of uh, the, the, the teachings of the Bible because it is lifted right out of the Bible. So what I want to do over the next two weeks is just hit the high points of it. If you want to take the hymnal in front of you and open to page 847, that is where the confession begins. 
And we'll start there. And I only have this today and next week to get through this. So we're going to be moving pretty fast. I don't have time to defend it. As I said, we'd be here for a few years. So on page 847, chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. That is called natural revelation. Man looks at creation around him. He looks at nature. He looks at providence in his life. And he's inexcusable for not knowing that God exists. But that knowledge of God is not sufficient unto salvation. And we've been going through the Shorter Catechism, and we, we talked about, when I was here a few weeks ago teaching, it just the, the end state of man's sin, misery and death. Sin, misery, and death. So, we, man can look around at the wonders of creation. <clears throat> look at a strand of DNA. Look at when a baby is conceived, and there are chromosomes with DNA, and all, all the processes are in place to grow into to, you know, a baby, to a child to an adult all the way through life. Look at the complexity of the world around us, the universe on its grand scale, the light of nature, the works of creation, and providence, circumstances and events in our lives. Men are not excused from not knowing that God exists from that. But it's not sufficient unto salvation. So the next clause, therefore... It pleased the Lord at sundry times, sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto the church. <clears throat> now we're getting into special revelation because we can't know God. We can't see him. We can't go to him. How do we know God? Only as he reveals himself to us. So there's general revelation. Now we're getting into special revelation. It pleased the Lord to declare His will unto the church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of His church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan, and the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. So we had general revelation, special revelation, and now we're looking at the purposes for why God did that. To declare His will, to establish and comfort the church, it was committed to writing. So the Bible, the Scriptures, they're not merely a witness to Revelation. Um, that's called dialectical theology. That's neo-orthodoxy. That was after the church had gone so far liberal, some guys tried to bring it back and... and tried to hold on to some aspects of orthodoxy. 
The scriptures are not merely a witness to revelation. They are revelation. The Bible that we hold in our hands is the Word of God. It's not merely talking about the Word of God. It doesn't merely contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So what has been committed to writing in the Scriptures is God's self-revelation and the declaration of His will to the church. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church. The last clause of that first paragraph under chapter 1, the former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. Well, what were those former ways of revelation? Well, prophets, visions, dreams, a burning bush, a pillar of smoke and fire, the audible voice of God, or miraculous signs. Now, we'll get further in the confession. Can God, God normally works through means? Ordinary means? We become Christians because the Spirit works, regenerates us to hear Him call, but someone shares the gospel with us. But God can work above means when it suits His goodwill. But ordinarily... These former ways that God revealed himself have ceased and his revelation is in general revelation and in special revelation in the scriptures. Paragraph 2. Under the name of the Holy Scriptures of the Word of God written are contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments. And there they are, the list of all the books. Notice the Apocrypha is not in there, but that, that paragraph 2 stops, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So everything we do as a church is subject to the Scriptures. Everything we do as Christians should be subject to the Scriptures. In our family life, in our church life, in our civil civic life, It should all be subject to the Scriptures because they are inspired by God to be the rule of faith and life. Paragraph 3 just says the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are not part of the canon of Scripture. Canon, that just means a measuring rod or a standard. Okay, so the Apocrypha. Some of you who came out of other traditions may be familiar with the Apocrypha. Uh, There's a number of books and uh, but they are the, the during the Reformation they were kicked out of the Bible more or less is not being inspired. <clears throat> now, paragraph four, we start the authority of Scripture. Paragraph five is the perfection of Scripture, more on the authority. Paragraph six, the sufficiency of Scripture. Paragraph seven, the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. We'll talk about this. Okay. <clears throat> So paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to believe 
received, it is to be received because it is the word of God. The truth of the scripture is tied to the very character of God. We accept it as, tr- as truth, as God's word, because we accept that God is truth, that God is holy, and that he has chosen to reveal himself to us. <clears throat> so he's given us this inspired word. We receive it's the, our authority for faith and life, and we receive it because it is the word of God. Paragraph 5 just goes to Scripture's self-authentication. And I'll go to the last couple of sentences there. Paragraph 5 begins with, We may be moved and induced to the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of its doctrine, the majesty of its style, the consent of all of its parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies. All right? What they're saying, hey, this is a great book. And the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Here's the important part. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, it is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So it's self-authenticating by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So that's why when we we go next door to the mosque, this is the Word of God. They might recognize it's a beautiful book. They might recognize the, 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 these things, the, the majesty of the style, the consent of the parts, the scope of the whole. But unless the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts, they won't accept it. It goes back to our salvation is an act of God. <clears throat> Paragraph 6, that's the sufficiency of the Scripture. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So everything we need to know about salvation can be found in the Bible. It goes down, nevertheless... We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. And that there are some circumstances concerning worship, that would be time, place, and order, things like that, and government of the church, common to human action, and societies which are to be ordered in the light of nature and Christian prudence. So what we see there from the inward illumination of the Spirit of God is necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the God back up with the end of paragraph 5, it's from the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Growth in the Word requires the Holy Spirit. Now, paragraph 6 ends with what's called sanctified common sense. The circumstances concerning worship, the time, place, and order, 
Nothing in the Bible says we're going to meet for Sunday school at 9.15 and worship at 10.30. Nothing in the Bible says you're going to meet on Old Settlers Road. Nothing in the Bible says you're going to turn on lights and have heat and air. Okay? Pews or chairs. Carpet or concrete. None of that's dictated to us in the Bible. It's all sanctified common sense. What we can do to best create an environment where we can glorify God. Okay. Paragraph 7. This is called purposcuity. Gets to the clarity of Scripture. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. All right. If you read, most Christians are familiar with the book of Revelation. A lot of imagery in there. To understand Revelation, you need to be solidly grounded in the Old Testament. Uh, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Daniel, uh, other prophets, lots of imagery. You get grounded in the Old Testament, the book of Revelation. The New Testament as a whole, the book of Revelation, begins to make more sense. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in the in some place in Scripture or other, that not only the learned, not only the, the, the pastors, the scholars, but the unlearned, the common man, a man who's you know didn't finish school, in the due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So while the Bible has many complex passages... Many deep truths, many deep revelations to us. The basics of salvation are clear and plain and can be understood by anybody. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to understand the basics of salvation. It might help with some, some of the grand scope of the scriptures, but salvation, our children can understand it. Of a certain age. Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the truth is finally to appeal unto them. All right. So when we have a debate at Presbytery... If it's over a scripture passage, they will go into the Greek and the Hebrew because those were inspired by God. Now, part of the book, part of the Bible is written in Aramaic, very small passages. But in Hebrew and Greek, that's where the church is to go to settle controversies because those, were, those words were verbally, immediately inspired by God. <clears throat> And it continues. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people, I mean, my, I know nothing of Hebrew. I know a little Greek. Because these original tongues are not known to all people of God who have right unto an interest in the Scriptures, are commanded to read and search them, and they are to be translated into the vulgar language. That means the common language. This was written in the 1600s. The common language of every nation into which they come. Okay, so we are commanded to translate these scriptures 
into the language of the people, but it's got to be accurate to the Hebrew and the Greek. That's why churches get, you know, some of us get really bent out of shape about what version of the Bible you might be reading, because it's got to be a translation. There's two two criteria for translation, faithfulness to the original, but it's also got to be readable. We have to be able to read it and understand it. So Christians are to know and understand the Scripture. Subparagraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scriptures is the Scripture itself. All right, this gets to the unity of Scripture. All right, the finality of Scripture. Scripture is the supreme judge of itself. If we don't understand something, we look elsewhere. That's why I said, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you must be grounded in the Old Testament. Paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be, de- to be determined, last sentence, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. So this whole first paragraph is on why we have the Scripture, the authority, the clarity, uh, all this about Scripture. The only way we know God is by the Scripture. Paragraph 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. uh, Chapter 2. Paragraph 1 and 2 here, getting the the, the attributes of God. John talked about these as we're going through the shorter catechism. There is only one living and true God, infinite in being and perfection, the most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions. By that they mean human emotions. God is not fickle. He's not changeable. He's not driven by sinful or whimsical passion. Does he have passions? Yeah, he talks about hating sin. But God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. And we, every one of those clauses... There's a scripture passage here supporting that language. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who by will by no means clear the guilty. It goes on. More attributes of God in paragraph 1 and 2 there, all supported by Scripture. You don't see that in your hymnal, in the copy of confession in your hymnal, because it doesn't have, there's not room. I mean, it would be this thick on top of all the music. So, if you don't have a copy of the confession, I encourage you to get one. But paragraph, or subparagraph 3 here of chapter 2, we get to the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God, uh, John talked about this in the Shorter Catechism. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. <clears throat> There's much more to it, but this is just a summary. In chapter 3, God's eternal decree. Note here, the confession we set forth in chapter 1, Revelation. How do we know God? Through the Scripture. 
chapter 2, this is who God is, the attributes of God. And then um, those are the foundations for his works and activity, which begin here in chapter 3 of God's eternal decree. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. All right? Everything that happens, and we'll talk about it again in chapter 5, everything that happens is ordained by God. As R.C. Sproul, as you've heard this before, if there's one maverick molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. So the cancer cells grow as ordained by God. We don't always know why, but everything is ordained by God. Subparagraph 2, it goes on, Oh, God knows whatever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. Yet he hath not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. That rules out when we get into salvation. There are Christians who don't believe that God has elected individuals for salvation. They take a view, salvation is possible to all men. I won't dispute it's possible to all men. It's only coming to those who God has chosen. But they'll stop it. It's possible to all men. And then whoever decides, chooses God, will be saved. If that were true, is God sovereign? If there cannot be a maverick molecule in the universe because God is sovereign, can there be a maverick individual? Nah, I might, I might not choose God. As I said a few weeks ago when I was teaching, that reduces God to wringing his hands in angst, hoping maybe somebody will believe in the Messiah that he sent to live a perfect life to, on our behalf, to die on our behalf, and to be raised to glory as a surety or a promise that we will be raised to glory. If God is not sovereign in salvation, he's not sovereign anywhere. There's not a maverick molecule. There's not a maverick person. God is sovereign. It's not blind human history. God is not adaptive or reactive. God, now, there are passages in the Scripture that say God relented. That's because the Scriptures condescend to our human, our limited human perception of the world. But God is not adaptive or reactive. He does not elect or, or, elect or choose based on an outcome decided by humans. There are a number of causes in our world, but God is the ultimate cause. Between his ultimate will, his ultimate eternal decree, between his ultimate will and human events, there are many other actors and causes which arise. 
But these are all secondary causes, which are also ordained by God. God permits, allows, ordains, and redeems sins, all right? But it's our decision to act on sin. That's paragraph three. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Even the fall of man and the fall of angels was under God's decree of predestination. We'll look at this again in chapter 5. These men and angels, or angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be increased or diminished. God is truly sovereign, and our eternal destiny is in his hands. Though, did someone, I thought someone asked a question. Go, feel free to ask a question. I won't promise a coherent answer, but... Those of mankind, paragraph 5, those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel of his good pleasure, of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or in any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. This aims towards humility. It reminds us that there is nothing in us that is the reason for election. It's God's mere grace and good pleasure. Nothing in us. Paragraph 6. He's ordained the elect unto glory. See, he hath by eternal most free purpose of his will ordained the means thereunto. All right. The means... He's not only appointed the elect unto eternal glory, he's also ordained the secondary rules for, uh, roles for people, the means to that end. The elect, uh, keeping on in paragraph 6, elected, are redeemed, effectually called unto faith, justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Okay. So goes on. It's all God is sovereign in salvation. And then paragraph 8, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. All right? It's for obedience. It's for our assurance. It's so that we praise, revere, and admire God. And then the last there, end of humility, diligence. So it's, um, it's all gets to a proper understanding of election or of predestination. It should bring humility in us but also praise because God is sovereign, we are not, and we had nothing to do with it. Sure. Okay. Free will is chapter 9 of your confession. Go ahead and turn over there. Chapter 9 is called... Okay. (laughs) You what? (laughs) 
Okay. Chapter 9. Of a cha- yeah. Chapter 9. Of free will. Martin Luther, one of his famous books coming out of the Reformation, is a book called The Bondage of the Will. Okay. We are thinking and willing creatures. That's without dispute. And we think we have a will. In that sense, we are free. If I want to walk back and get a donut, I'll walk back and get a donut. Okay? God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. Okay. <clears throat> man cannot escape his nature. We cannot choose contrary to our nature. We'll set that as a, as a supposition here. Okay. So in the rest of chapter 9, there are four states of man. And John talked about this a bit uh, in going through the, the shorter catechism. Okay, the paragraph two, that's the state of innocency. All right? That is before the fall. Adam had a free will to choose good or to choose evil in the Garden of Eden. God says, I give you this wonderful garden. Everything here is for you. Work it. Take care of it. It'll be abundant. It's all for you, except obey me. So Adam and Eve had the ability, they had the free will to choose good or evil. They chose evil. So subparagraph three. Man by his fall into a state of sin. Well, Paragraph 2, man in the state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably that he might fall from it. So they could do good, they could do evil. Paragraph 3, man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse to that is good, are dead in sin, not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So since the fall, every human has been born with a will in bondage to sin. Gets back to Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. So the state of innocency, we could choose good, we could choose evil. We had free will. In the state of sin... We have free will, but it's bound to our sinful nature. So we cannot choose good insofar as it leads to salvation. Does that mean that every act of, that we do is evil? Not overtly evil, but no, it's evil in the sense that it's not uh, efficacious for salvation. Paragraph 4. When God converts a sinner, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, this is the third state, he freeth him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone, God's grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruption, he doth not perfectly nor only will that which is good, 
but doth also that which is evil. So, in the garden, state of innocency, we could choose good, we could choose evil. We chose evil. Since then, we're in a state of sin. We can only do evil in relation to salvation. In the state of grace, that's where we're living now. We can choose good, we can choose evil, but because of our remaining sin nature, we don't do perfectly, we don't choose good perfectly. And then paragraph 5, the will of man is made perfect and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. So the four states, state of innocency, that's the garden, state of sin, that's the sin and misery and death that we fell into, the state of grace, we're redeemed, but we still have a sin nature, in the state of glory, we'll be made perfect after after, uh, we are uh, raised to glory after death and after the final judgment. Okay, so that's where free will plays in this. We're bound to our nature. John always uses the, the example of the, the dog and the cat. You know, the, the cat wants to, uh, you know, eat tuna fish and, and, you know, it's kind of aloof and it acts like a cat, whereas the dog barks at everything and chases cars and the cat has no interest in those things. All right, one's a cat, one's a dog. So in the state, our bondage to our will until we're redeemed and then our sin is not removed. It's removed in a salvific sense, in a, in a sense of salvation. But we still have the sin nature within us, so we still sin. We won't be made perfect until glorification. So that's how free will plays into it. You know, we can't choose to salvation. You're dead in sin. Paul talks about that in Ephesians uh, 1 and 2. Dead in sin. The raising of Lazarus was an example to us. Lazarus was dead. His sisters even said, don't roll the stone away. It's going to stink in there. He was dead. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. At that point, because he had been raised from the dead, he was able to answer. Same thing in our salvation. You know, we, we answer because we've been regenerated and we're enabled to answer the call. Now, in our saved state here, we continue to sin. Um, we have free will to act, you know, free will accordance to our nature before salvation. It's only a non-saving will. After our salvation, we can glorify God, but we still choose to sin at times. Uh, you know, obviously, sin is sin. It's not in accordance with the will of God. All right, we are out of time. I didn't get anywhere near as far as I'd hoped today. So... We'll see. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, any any last minute questions before we prepare for worship? Yes, Julie. Do you have a recommendation on more literature around I I don't have anything. In my library, and I haven't seen anything in the church library regarding that, so let me let me do some research on that. And uh, didn't they take the Hanukkah out because the Jewish uh, the Jewish rejected the Hanukkah? I don't think it's in the Jewish. Camp. I don't think it is either. Oh, well, but the Book of Maccabees. 
talks about the revolt against the Greeks. Um, and it kind of covers that period after uh, Malachi is the last book of the Bible. Now, whether Malachi was actually the last prophet or not, you know, there might be a little debate there. But that's the close of the canon. Then there were 400 years till Christ came. A lot happened. You know, the, uh, Alexander the Great came through, and then his kingdom split up, and, and there was a lot of fighting between various uh, successors to the Greeks before the Romans came in. A lot happened in there, and that's the period of the Apocrypha. And I, I can't really talk intelligently right now about why they were all removed, other than they weren't recognized as inspired um, they were in a lot of Protestant... I mean, they're still in the Catholic Bible. The Anglicans still read them. If you look through an Anglican um, reading plan in, the, in the, uh, their lectionary, they still read the Apocrypha. The Anglicans do. It's, there's probably some others that use it still. I don't know if the Lutherans do. Um, but I can't... I don't know. I'll ask John. He might have a reference, yeah, of why those things were taken out. Okay. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord God Almighty, as we uh, prepare our hearts and minds for worship here, knowing that all that we do as a church and as individuals is to be for your glory, uh, we, we ask that as we go forth to worship you, that you will accept our worship, that you will speak to us in the sermon, that you will speak to us uh, through, through the, the words we sing as, as we dialogue together, as we praise you and we hear you speaking in those songs and in the, in, in the, the sermon, and that you'll hear our petitions and our prayers and go with us, strengthen us this week as we go forth to live our lives to your glory. It's through Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Confession and the Catechisms, I have... Three reading plans up here if you want to come take a look at them. One goes through just one little thing a day. It takes a whole year. Then I have two that take you through in a month, and they are way intense.